seated. Taking your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We continue our reading tonight in the Gospel of Matthew, coming upon a passage that is somewhat familiar, where Peter makes the high and holy confession that Jesus is the Christ. The reading begins tonight at Matthew 16, 13, and continues through verse 23. And you will soon see why the message is titled Confessing Christ and Hindering Christ, because Peter does both in two short pericopes that Matthew has smashed together to give us a clear glimpse at the grace of God in the salvation of men and the grace of God in the building of his church. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you have granted us the privilege of sons and daughters, that we would recognize the voice of our master, that we, upon recognizing that voice, would have the grace in our heart to turn off the noise of false teachers and to be held captive by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the word of God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you have confirmed to us in seating him at your right hand that his intercessions cannot be defeated and shall not cease until the end of this age. We thank you for our great high priest and we ask Lord God in his name that it would please you to give us ears to hear, ears to believe, to understand, to obey. And Lord, we pray that you would reform us by your word, through your spirit tonight, to the praise of your glory, through the mediation of your son. We ask in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Beloved, this is the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word. Beloved, set before us tonight by the Spirit of God, we have what appears to be two different Peters. First, we have Peter of the light. This is the Peter who steps forward and confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the Peter who separates from the opinions of crowds and steps up and out to confess that which others had not been willing to confess. For making this good confession, Peter hears the highest praise a mortal can hear from Jesus Christ. You, Peter, have been blessed by the Father in heaven. My Father has revealed to you who I am. But there seems to be another Peter on the scene, appearing right after the first, the Peter of darkness. This Peter is the one who rebukes Jesus because this Peter cannot accept that Messiah must suffer. The Peter of darkness wants the Messiah to be all about glory. The Peter of darkness wants the Messiah to use his power and authority to avoid suffering and secure a thousand earthly victories for himself and his friends. Bread 24-7. That's what John 6 is all about. So this second Peter rebukes Jesus. And for doing so, Peter of darkness hears the most severe scolding a mortal can hear from Jesus Christ. Get behind me, Satan. Now, of course, there is only one Peter, not two. Just in case you thought I was losing it, I know there's only one. But Matthew wants us to see something about this one Peter. It is this all-over-the-place Peter, this high-and-low Peter, this one moment confessing, the next moment hindering Peter. It is this Peter and people like him with whom God will build the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus will not fail, no matter if the opposition is outside the church, or in this case, with Peter, within the church. It will not fail. It will not fail because the glory and strength of the church is God's interest in her, not her own abilities and personalities and excellencies. God will so bless the church of his son that everything which could crash her to the ground will be kept out of her, and all that is needed for her success will be added unto her. This is the way the church of Jesus Christ will continue to thrive until the end of the age. It will always have God's blessing. Always. It was that very simple truth that the church is the one institution upon the earth that has promised God's continued blessing that persuaded me to not go get a PhD, but to pursue pastoral ministry. Because I couldn't say about the academy what I knew I could say to my heart about the church. Beloved, the Lord will always bless his church in spite of herself, in spite of her enemies. So no matter how messy it is 
at one time or how messy its people are at one time, the living God is totally invested in the church. Now, for the church to be blessed of God, it must have men who will confidently confess the church's true head, the church's true Lord, the church's true cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, it is my church. I will build my church. God's church belongs to Jesus. He bought her by his own blood, Acts 20, 28. The church does not belong to some special men of the present. And surprise, it doesn't belong to special men of the past. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And therefore, it must have earthly leaders who will confidently confess that it belongs to Jesus Christ. And not to a pope, not even to a prophet. It belongs to Jesus Christ. This is what is happening in verse 13 through 15 tonight. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, by asking the question this way, our Lord is showing us the title Son of Man does not itself solve anything. Apparently, it does not mean prophet, this title, Son of Man. It does not mean Messiah. It does not mean divine being. If everyone understood it as one of those things, Simply asking the question would have answered the question. Son of Man is a self-reference, which our Lord has used many times, and Matthew has noted many of them. It basically means I. In fact, in Mark's telling of this very same event, Jesus says, who do people say I am? Son of Man is simply a placeholder. For I. Now, what Jesus is doing by asking this question, he is shepherding his disciples to step up to a new line of maturity, a new line of confession, a new line of faith. He is going to test to see if they have the grace and the courage to see where the crowds are in their identification of Jesus, and then see if they will move past the crowds and stand apart from the crowds. So the first question then must be, who do people say the Son of Man is? This question gets the disciples to put everything they have been hearing on the table. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the popular opinion on Jesus at the time came down to his being in the category of the prophets, which means the crowds had Jesus only on the same level as John the Baptist. It is honorable to describe our Lord as a prophet, but it is wrong. And to be left at the level of popular opinion is to be left in the dark. Jesus will not leave his apostles in the dark. So Jesus brings out his next question, but who do you say that I am? This is a summons for these chosen men to go further. It's a summons for them to separate from popular opinion and confess and commit to Jesus in a way that is true, but not popular. So what Jesus does here with these questions, though it is unique for his apostles, 
we are actually seeing a very appropriate method of stirring up one another in the faith, in the church of Jesus Christ. The scripture says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24. It is good for church members to ask non-communicant members if they have considered making a profession of faith. I don't need to be the only one who asks that question. A teenager asked my son that question earlier this year. God blessed it, and my son proceeded. It is good for church members to ask other members if they would be willing to renew their commitment to Lord's Day worship. It is good for church members to ask other members, hey, will you pray for me? I'm not so strong in my faith right now. All of these questions, and others like them, can be sincere ways to bring other believers to a deeper and more mature walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by God's grace, they will never retreat from it. We are learning from our Lord how to care for the souls of the elect. He's doing something very special here, but we who are standing nearby get to learn from it how to care for one another. Now back to our text. In verse 16, Peter answers the new, more personal question for everyone. You are the Christ, he says, the Son of the living God. What Peter has just confessed is that Jesus is far more than a prophet. Jesus is the Christ. In the New Testament, this word Christ means the exact same thing as the word Messiah in the Old Testament. Technically, it means God's anointed one. That's an etymological definition of Christos, or Messiah, Messiah, God's anointed one. But Peter was not thinking like a dictionary when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Most Jews in first century Palestine would have understood the Christ to mean the promised son of David, a royal figure from the line of David, a descendant of David, who would be sent by God to restore the nation of Israel to the glory and independence it had known under the reign of the first King David. This was the popular view of the Christ when Peter said this. It was really a nationalistic title for most people that carried the political hopes of Israel in it. The Christ would shake off their enemies, the occupying Roman. The Christ would shake off their enemies and usher in great prosperity upon the Israel of earth and great righteousness. Now, we should have no doubt at all that Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is both a wonderful gift to Peter, as our Lord immediately says, but it is also an incomplete conviction in Peter. Peter for sure knows Jesus is God's anointed, the climactic figure long promised and now given by God to accomplish all that was ever promised to Israel. Peter knows that as a gift of God. But as we see in verse 22, and we'll get there, Peter's convictions about the Christ do not yet include suffering 
and execution. Because Peter's definition of Israel's enemies is political, much like his fellow Jews' definition of their enemy. Who is the true enemy of their soul? Not flesh and blood, not Roman centurions. The true enemy of man is Satan and sin and the world. That cannot be shaken off. That must be settled once and for all by blood. Peter sees in a distant horizon the ultimate triumph and glory of the Christ, but he does not see the near horizon of the suffering Christ, which means for Peter, his distant horizon, that's his only horizon for the Christ, which means his distant horizon is his near horizon, which means Peter wants the Christ to bring glory upon the earth right now. And that's why we're going to see him rebuke Jesus in just a moment. Now let's observe a few things about the three verses that follow immediately Peter's confession. And keep in mind that what is being set before us here is the unconquerable grace of God in building the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing is going to prevent it. No enemy within, no enemy without is going to prevent it. So let's look what our Lord says. Verse 17 first. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As soon as Peter makes the good confession, Jesus announces that a divine gift has been bestowed. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus has revealed to Peter what was previously hidden from Peter. Now, if you like to do a little grammatical work, the word revealed is apocalypto, something that's always been there, but hidden, until that which hid it is cleared away, like opening a curtain. It's the same word, of course, that is the title of the last book of the New Testament. Apocalypsis, the revelation. So, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus has revealed to Peter what was previously hidden from Peter, and what was once hidden could not have been revealed to Peter by the skills or wisdom or prying eyes of any mortal. Not Peter himself, not his father Jonah. That's what Bar-Jonah means, son of Jonah, son of Jonas, son of Johann, maybe. There's all sorts of curiosities about the actual name of his father. No one, though, could reveal this to Peter of mortal nature. What was once hidden could only be revealed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what has been revealed? The true identity of Jesus Christ. This has been revealed to Peter. Which means Peter, up until this revealing by God, Peter was in the dark. Because of sin, he, Peter, was under the blinding power of Satan until this revealing. But God chose to burst into that darkened mind and into that alienated life, just like he did with Paul, who was Saul. God chose to burst into that darkened mind, into that alienated life, and reveal the soul-saving truth about Jesus Christ. And so we should agree with our brother, John Calvin. The minds of men are destitute, 
of the sagacity which is necessary for perceiving the mysteries of heavenly wisdom which are hidden in Christ. All the senses of men are deficient in this respect till God opens our eyes to perceive his glory in Christ. That's the gift that's been given to Peter. Now, we should understand that the Church of Jesus Christ will be built without any resistance from the inherent inability of fallen men. The Lord just reaches into the kingdom of darkness and pulls Peter out and lights him up with the truth, as he does. The inherent inability of fallen men will not be a hindrance for the building of the church of Jesus Christ. And this is always, as we learn from our Lord in verse 17, always to be a great cause for the church's ongoing praise. I, con- I have to confess to you, and I, and I don't mind if I actually set this grievance in your own heart. It is a grievance to me that particular churches of Jesus Christ refuse to rejoice in the sovereign grace of God in revealing Christ as Savior to sinners. Look at how our Lord is so eager to declare the praise of God as he announces to Peter what has befallen him. My Father has revealed this to you, not any mortal. This is in our hymnody, praise God. This is in our Psalter, praise God. We should be grieved that it is not more often in the particular churches of Christ in the world to give praise to the Father for this kind of intrusion into the darkness of sinners' minds. Now look at verse 18. Our Lord continues, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, having given praise to God for his gift of saving revelation, Jesus now moves to further strengthen Peter's heart for the work ahead. Jesus gives Simon Barjona, that's Peter, Jesus gives Simon Barjona a new name. And what's his new name? Peter. In the earlier references in Matthew's gospel, it identifies the disciples and says, and there's one named Simon, and then it has in English parentheses who was called Peter. Well, right here, right here, we finally reached the point in the narrative where this new name is first given to Simon. It's right here. Petros is the name in Greek. This new name, R.T. France tells us, is virtually unknown as a personal name in the ancient world. Now, that's how scholars speak to say, we haven't found any evidence yet. They have not found yet that in the ancient world, a man was called Petros. But here's our Lord Jesus saying to Simon, you are now Petros, which in Aramaic is, you know it, Cephas. Both words mean the same thing, rock. What this means is there must be some very special reason 
that Jesus bestows this name on Peter. And sure enough, like the fine detectives we are, you actually can't miss this, <laughs> so we find out exactly what that reason for this name is in our Lord's next breath. And on this rock, which is Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus gives Peter the name Rock, so he can encourage him by promising that he will be a man of solidity, that he will be a man of solid ground, that he will be a rock of a man. And what can you do with a rock of a man? You can build a church upon him. Now, this, doesn't, this isn't meant to exclude the other men who have been called by this revealing grace, just like Peter. But this is meant to set Peter apart for what's to follow over the next three decades. Jesus gives Peter the name Rock to encourage him that for all that is yet to come, Peter will be sustained. Now, there's another passage in Matthew where this word appeared in the context of building. You may remember it. Matthew 7, verse 24, our Lord spoke in a parable about a wise man who built his house on the Petra. Here our Lord is saying, he's the wise man. Jesus is the wise man who's going to build his house, his, of which he is the architect and the builder. And he's going to build it on men of grace, men who have been chosen by God the Father, men who have been blessed with the revealing knowledge of who the Christ is. Now, the opponents of the church will not succeed in exploiting the weaknesses of her servants. Christ's servants are choice rocks laid by Christ. His servants will not fail. The world will not grind his servant to dust. Now, if you follow Peter's career, maybe that's the wrong word to use. If you follow Peter's ministry, it's a mess. It's a mess after this. And then what you think is the worst mess, the denial of Christ at the fire, it's a, it's a mess even after that when Paul has to rebuke Peter. And Paul writes about it to the Galatians. But Peter never fails, never apostatizes, repents. Even if he has to be rebuked and called Satan, he will not fail. This is how the church will be built. It leaves us all looking not for strength in men, but praising the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, who will make sure all is accomplished, just as he promised. And it is a glory to him to take weak men, men who are regularly displaying their weakness, and him still using them, renewing them, finishing them. That's what he does. Now, it's worth mentioning briefly, and I, I'm only going to do this briefly. You probably are very familiar with the debates within the Roman Catholic Church about whether here in this very passage, Jesus is giving Peter a perpetual office known as the Pope, the Apostolic See. Well, there is nothing in this passage, nothing at all, about any successors to Peter. That would be eisegesis, to read successors to Peter into this text. 
This is not about successors. You know what this is about? This is about Peter, but even more about the grace that will keep Peter. So if there's any link between the personal role of Peter and the subsequent papacy, it can't be found in this text. And I dare say it cannot be found in the scriptures. Now, there's something to say about verse 19, but I'm not going to say it. Because when we get to Matthew 18, this exact same teaching is going to appear again about the keys of the kingdom. And I'm going to address it then and bring both of these together. So let us go now to the final little passage that follows what we've just heard. We come to what I earlier called the Peter of darkness in verses 21 through 23. And here we quickly learn that Peter will be needing more grace, stronger faith, and greater understanding about the ministry of Christ, whom he has just confessed. And this little passage, 21 through 23, starts out with Jesus telling all the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. The word must is quite important. I cannot avoid Jerusalem. I cannot stay away from Jerusalem. Don't give me a different map. Don't book me a room on the, si- on the seaside. I must go. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And ultimately, I must be killed. He tells his disciples that the official leaders of Israel, the men who had formal responsibility for the life of the nation, they will reject him. They will kill him. But they will in no way put an end to his dominion as the Christ of God. On the third day, he will rise again. He tells this to his disciples. Now, when Peter hears this, he never gets to, on the third day, I will rise again. I mean, it's just a, those, that final tale of the sentence is just in a big black tunnel. Peter never sees it. When he hears this, Peter, he starts to instinctively choke upon it. Think four chicken bones in the throat. I know, it's grim. That's Peter. To him, what he has just heard is a disaster to be avoided at all costs. To Christ, it is a necessity to pursue deliberately in the adoration of his father and in the love of his people. But Peter, hearing this, feels let down. Peter feels shamed that the Christ of God, his Christ, the one that he has hitched his wagon to, Peter feels shame that the Christ of God would be anything less than a smashing public success. That's why he takes Jesus over into the corner. Yes, for the dignity that he thinks he's protecting of the Lord, but also to deal with his own shame. Because he can't even have others hear him say it out loud, lest it metastasize. Peter, in his shock and shame, is ready to offer anything he has to prevent the death of Christ. Our Lord turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. This is Peter's second new name in just hours. Peter's rebuke of our Lord is aligned with the temptation of the devil 
back in Matthew 4 in the wilderness. Peter's doing the work of the devil in rebuking our Lord about going to Jerusalem and being crucified. Get thee behind me, Satan. It is a necessary sting from our Lord's mouth. Beloved, this is how men of grace, women of grace, who will not fail to be servants of Jesus Christ because they are brought into the kingdom by grace, they are kept in the kingdom by grace, they will be brought to the finish line by grace, your whole life is crowned with grace, but don't think that means you are kept without rebukes. (laughs) Your conscience will be stung by the Lord. Not because he wants to offend you. He's not some voodoo doctor poking pens in a doll that looks like you. He doesn't want to offend you. He wants to deliver you from that which is of this world. Get behind me, Satan. Then he adds, you are a hindrance to me. Now this is quite interesting. The word for hindrance is the word that is often used in this phrase you will find in the New and the Old Testament. Stumbling stone. Stumbling stone. Peter has just been called the Petra. Now he is being called the stumbling stone. Peter, you are in my way with this line of argument. You are a stumbling stone to me. You will prevent the very thing for which I have come if I yield to you. This, of course, is parallel to get behind me, Satan. You're trying to stop me, and it is horrific. Then our Lord adds, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is a theologian of glory at this point. Theologians of glory always set their minds on the things of man. Theologians of glory are theists. They are monotheists. They are even orthodox monotheists. But what makes them a theologian of glory is that they want God to bring about an earthly glory They want more prosperity for the church while we continue under the same old curse. They don't want the church to be brought to heaven. They want the church to have a great time on the earth. Theologians of glory look upon the cross and are embarrassed by it. Theologians of the cross, though, who are the true theologians, they recognize that Christ crucified in Jerusalem, rejected by the very leaders of the nation that he has come to, but going to the cross anyway for the very people who reject him, that is the wisdom and power of God. That cross brings about a breaking and a destruction 
of all the enemies of the sinner, including his own heart, and the devil, and the world. And that theologian of the cross recognizes that the best place for the church to be is in heaven, not wrapped in glory on the earth. You can tell if you're a theologian of the cross or a theologian of glory. Think about it. What do you want more? To have sin that's in your life defeated or to have a pay raise this year? Your prayers will tell you the answer. We don't even have to, you don't even have to guess the answer to the question. None of us do. The receipts are in our prayers. What have we been asking for? More earthly prosperity while under the same old curse? Are we asking for sin to be defeated in our life, even if we must lose something of this earth? It is quite a shock, I suspect, to Peter to hear our Lord's rebuke to him. But it is a great reminder for all of us, and including him, of course. And Calvin said it succinctly in his commentary on this very text, verse 23. Let us not desire to be wise in any other manner than from the mouth of God. In verse 21, we had right from the mouth of God what is true wisdom for the Christ. The true way of wisdom, the true rule of wisdom, the true power of wisdom came right out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus in verse 21. And Peter exceeded the boundaries of wisdom and searched for it in his own head. Calvin again, let us not desire to be wise in any other manner than from the mouth of God. So here is the bottom line of our text this night, that the church of Jesus Christ will be built It will be built because it is not dependent upon the excellencies of the servants of Christ. It is dependent upon the grace of heaven, which has been completely reconciled to us, that grace through the body and blood of Jesus. All the grace needed for us to prosper and continue and endure and come to heaven as a church triumphant. All of it is ours. And we will have fits and stops. We will need to hear rebukes along the way. We will say things that we regret. Oh, you know, it's probably good that Peter uh, didn't have much say about how Matthew would tell this story. We will have things that we wish weren't in the family album. But the grace of our God and Father He will bring his church to its glory and all her members. Praise him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text tonight and the grace that is everywhere in it and the grace that is so vivid and amazing when we see it applied to a man like Peter. Lord, help us remember that we are a man like Peter, a woman like Peter, that we are both John of the light and John of the darkness, that we are indeed a mixed bag 
but it is the strength of heaven's grace, a father whose eye is now upon us all the way to the end, the father who first called us, first revealed the son to us, blessed us when we had no right to the blessing, no merits for it, no preparation for it. Having begun with us in such a dire condition, how will he not now continue with us now that he has united us by faith in the spirit to his risen son? Oh Lord, give us great confidence that you will give us everything we need, even the needed rebuke and the proper heart to respond to it. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.